0: So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law of the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy, that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard, that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Thanks, Raina. Um, So I'll come out with a little bit of honesty. Um, uh, I... I feel pretty depleted first service. This passage is um, very intense and uh, uh, rattles us a little bit, and so um, I hope that you can see it from that way. Um, Before I kind of give you a little bit of what the Sermon on the Mount, if you're new, um, I want to start with just a a rule that a guy named Malcolm Gladwell came up with. If you don't know Malcolm Gladwell, is he's an author Uh, one of my favorite uh, authors who is alive today. Uh, He's read all of his books. If you can just get your hand on a couple, he's a brilliant writer. He's not a Christian at all, but um, his thoughts are extremely thought-provoking. In his book, The Outliers, he talks about something called the 10,000-hour rule. And the 10,000-hour rule is essentially that if you do something for... At least 10,000 hours, you cease to become an apprentice in that thing and have mastered that thing. And not like you're the best at it, but you are considered a master, right? You go from a Padawan to a, a Jedi or whatever you will. You, you go from, from being something that you're learning and, 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 and kind of knowing to you know the ins and outs of what that is. You can walk it in and out backwards. You can see the problem where people look at it and, and, and they totally get it. A great example of this is um, I had to go get an MRI, like an ultrasound on my stomach because I have some, some uh, gut issues and um, you know they're looking at this and it's the same thing that they did for my wife. When she was pregnant you know they're putting this thing on your belly and they're looking at certain things and I'm looking at the screen and it just looks like nothing to me just a mosh thing of like just you know like so that's your liver and I'm like okay and I go how can you tell and she goes and honestly can you she goes well just after a while you just know right she is a master in that she has done this for long enough that almost like a foreign language she sees things in the matrix I don't see um and so she's looking at this screen going I can I can see that and I don't see it right one of the things, um, and I really only think there's probably one thing that I can say I, I have done enough that I can be considered a master in, and not that I am so good that I am the master at it, though I probably am, is basketball, um, <laughs> okay? Okay. Um, so I grew up playing all kinds of sports, right? Uh, predominantly loved football and basketball and, um, uh, played basketball through junior high, obviously in high school. And then, uh, had an opportunity I didn't do to a small, um, Christian college uh, to play at. So I played, obviously wasn't awesome at it, but I know the game of basketball, right? I know it well enough that I kid you not, and this may sound goofy, but if you have a field where you feel like you're a master and you've done something for 10,000 hours, you probably get this, but I can watch someone get on a court. And just start dribbling and shooting. And immediately I know that dude's not a hooper or that guy's a hooper. Like, see, I'm a basketball. So if you don't know what a hooper is, he's not, he's not a player. He's not a basketball player. Like I've seen grown athletes who who play football, right? Super athletic. They get on the court and they're like lifting their leg up dribbling and they're shooting all goofy. And I go, that dude's not a player. Like he doesn't play basketball. He may be shooting a basketball right now, but he's not a hooper. All right. And I, I can just see it. I know it sounds crazy. Now I tell that, I start with this wild example, bizarre, totally out of left field, because there's something that I realized when I was trying to narrow down, like, what is a basketball player? Asking what is a basketball player? And it's funny because um, I have a friend who loves the game of basketball. Uh, He, like, so he's, he's collected cards all of his life. He has probably two dozen jerseys. He could tell you stats upon stats upon stats upon all the NBA players, okay? But he has no desire whatsoever to pick up a basketball himself and play. He just does not want to do that. But he loves the game of basketball. And hear me when I say this, he's not a hooper. He's not a player. I mean, he knows the game. He has a desire for the game, but he doesn't actually put the sneaks on, get on the floor, and start playing. He's not a basketball player. But then I got another guy who uh, I play with every single week. He's a local pastor friend of mine. Um, And he comes every single week and plays basketball with us on Wednesday night. right? But he comes strictly because he wants to get exercise. He He wants to get it in, get a workout in. But he doesn't care about the game of basketball. He's just playing basketball. Now, though... He is shooting, and he's rebounding, and he's passing. He's actually playing basketball. Hear me. He's not a hooper. He doesn't have a desire for basketball. He doesn't know what it's like to sleep with a basketball. He doesn't know what it's like to, 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 to give your life away to both love and hate this stupid thing that is, you know what I mean? There's moments where you want to kick it across the gym and then there's moments where you feel like, if I don't hold one, I'm going to die. There's just this thing. He doesn't know what that's like. He doesn't have a desire like that to play basketball. And the reason I share this, because I think um, in that way, that's a, a great analogy, at least in my mind, to understand this thing that we have, this tension we live in in Christianity called faith and works. Meaning this, there are some of you who say you have a desire for Jesus. You even words, use words like, I'm hungry for him. I want to know him more. But you don't put in the discipline. You don't know what it's like to do two a days at 5 a.m. 5 a.m., you're not a hooper. You, you don't know what it's like to be self-controlled. You, you love Jesus. You love the idea of Jesus, but you're like my boy with jerseys that never gets it in. And then I, I can't help but think of a, a, another guy There's some of you who do all the right things, who memorize the songs, who have the church attendance up here, but you have no desire for Jesus. You don't love him. You are like the Pharisee. And the tension that the New Testament puts us in is this idea that faith is inevitable. You cannot come to God without faith. But hear me when I say this. Our faith is necessary, but works, they're absolutely inevitable. They will take place to show that faith is there. And that is what makes a Christian. Or in my analogy, those are the hoopers. Those are the ones who both love the game of basketball and actually play it. And within Christianity, you cannot have one without the other. And our passage this morning is going to melee us with asking us, forcing us to ask deep deep faith-oriented questions. This passage this morning, I hope, rattles us in such a way that we ask these questions about our faith in deep ways. For example, do we actually have some faith? So um, if you weren't here last week, if you don't know anything about where we are, we're in what we've called the greatest sermon ever preached. It's preached by the dude we follow, Jesus. And, and he's uh, started in Matthew 5, and he's preaching, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And he's gone through this idea that there is this world we live in that is telling us to live one way, and then the kingdom of God that he brings, which is bringing another way. And what we found out last week is that the Father of Jesus, our Heavenly Father, our Father loves us immensely. Okay? So that idea of faith, we trust in him because he is so good to us that he gives us only good things. He only gives us these good things. Even when we want a snake, he will only give us good things. And when we pray in that way, when we pray in that direction, he will give us good things because he is a good father. He cares about us. Now there's a, a, a what I would call a hinge verse found in verse 12. I'm going to read it real quick that I think goes with last week's passage. And then bleeds into this week's passage, and it says this, in response to the word so, right? If you ever see a word so, so that, therefore, always read before the passage. So, because God loves us and gives us good things, he cares about us. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophet's. Now, all I want you to hear, and the reason I think this is a hinge verse, is this is the golden rule, right? This is the great command that Jesus lays out to us. It's super simple, yet unbelievably difficult to follow. And what I need you to hear is it's not a neutral command, meaning, if you just don't do anything, you're okay. Like you'll be able to stand before Jesus and go, Well, I did not love my neighbor, because the command is in the positive, meaning, you have to do something, there is action to be taken. And we are to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Now, if you have um, a family member, I know I do, who um, during Christmas time he gets you the gift that like he wants, right? Like, hey, here's an engine. Like, I, what am I gonna? You like hot rods? I don't like hot rods, right? Or here's a Packers jersey. Like, I you like the Packers? Almost like they give it to you so that like why don't you just keep this? I don't know why you gave this to me. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about, nor do I want to get lost in this. I just want you to, the very simple idea that the way that you care about yourself, the way that you love yourself, you are to love your neighbor. And it is in the positive. We are to do something. That doing something, I think is what propels us to the crux of our passage. So as we read verses 13, all the way through 23, hear me when I say this, this is Going to be difficult. And I don't know if it's just going to be difficult on me, but this passage, um, when I saw it on the calendar a year and a half ago as we processed as a lead team, I knew this passage was going to come up. And I've read this passage before. I remember very specifically sitting in my room, on the floor, reading my Bible, coming across this passage and going, good Lord, am I going to hell? Okay, so I, I need you to understand the immensity that Jesus is putting in front of us right now. It's a big deal. Please meditate on this passage with me as we go through it this is how it starts. Verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. So it's simple, right? So some of your Bibles actually say path right? But gate, pathway, whatever you want to say, there is a path, there is a gate, a way that leads to destruction. And there is a path that leads to life. The path that leads to destruction is described as easy and it's described as wide. And many people are going in that direction. And the path that is difficult, the path that leads to life is narrow. Matter of fact, the word narrow in Greek literally means like uh, uh, formed around or, or compressed, So if you grew up in Arizona like I did, more than likely if you spent a year here, you've probably gone on a trail somewhere in the mountains, right? And so what we know, we have trails for miles in the valley. And as you go on the trail, there's certain parts as you're hiking, you might see a part of the mountain that you want to go on or see a part of the trail that you want to go on that is off of the trail. But you can kind of see that people have walked it before. They want to go down it, right? And so it's surrounded by creosote bushes, maybe those stupid jumping cactuses, whatever it is. And so you, you see that path, and I think this is the picture that's being painted, right? So I go down that path and it's more difficult you're getting scratches on you and it's not easy but this path it leads to destruction and it it is wide and so there's a simple kind of opening thesis that Jesus is laying out that Christianity to be a Christian is not the easy path Christianity at its core will be and I quote hard it's going to be difficult it's going to be narrow as a matter of fact The parallel passage in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 13, instead of using the word enter, it says strive to enter. You know the Greek word for strive is agonizomai. What word do you think we get from agonizomai? Agony. Literally, Jesus puts in front of us, this path is going to be agonist. It's going to be flesh depleting. It's going to be extremely difficult. It's going to be compressing. It is not easy. So let's just start with that premise, y'all. That Christianity is not meant to be the easy path. Now let's pour on because Jesus ain't done, right? Then he he, he goes on to say this. To finish in verse 14, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So it's not that it's just not easy, but it doesn't say fewer. It just says few. And I have no idea what that number is. I have no idea how many people, what the reality is for the most part, society, many people who even call themselves believers, are walking down the easy path that is wide. And I'm telling you, hear me when I say this, the path of Christianity is not the cool path. You understand? It's not the fad. And unfortunately, we've been able to to, to ring on the coattails of the American democracy being Christian and because of that, we've had a lot of false converts, y'all. We've had a lot of people who, who just say this, yes, I'm a Christian, but do not process what that means for it to be a hard road. Long faithfulness in the same direction is not in our nature. And so there are few who go down that path, but there are many who go down this path. Now, obviously, if you're like me, the way I process this, I'm sitting there going, I don't want to go down that path. If it's the easy path, it leads to destruction. I don't want to go down that path. So Jesus actually gives us building on this idea ways that this has happened. How have we seen this? How are people going down that wide path? And keep in mind his context in this moment is he calls the masses together and then his disciples come forward. So he is talking to people who are following Jesus, following Jesus. He says this, building on this narrow path and this wide path. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothes, clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. One of the ways that the path that leads to destruction is so wide is because people are leading them down it. Now, if you don't know your Bible really well, this is something God deals with through the entire Bible. Over and over, what is happening is his people are there and they are starting to mold into the culture around them. They are starting to be with the masses and he sends someone to call them out on it. But when he sends this person to say, stop doing this, start doing this, whatever it is, inevitably there's always someone else who is a false prophet, a false teacher who comes alongside and says, no, 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 it's fine. So there's, I'm not kidding when I say this, hundreds of examples of this. I was going to read about a half a dozen, but let me just read one to you. There's a part where the people of God have been uh, uh, taken captive. And God has says, you're going to stay there for a long time. But because they don't want to hear that, because they don't want to hear this certain prophet Jeremiah say that, they'd rather listen to these other people say, no, 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 don't worry. God's going to come save us real soon. And Jeremiah is going, no, he has us here for a reason, guys. We need to sit in this pain. We need to sit where we are right now. And these other prophets are going, no, 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 they're fine. And Jeremiah prophesies this. This is exactly what God says about these prophets. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. They fill you with false hopes. Do you hear that? False hopes. They fill you with false hopes. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. Now, Peter picks up on this idea that in the Old Testament, people were doing this, they were lying saying they are from God and they were not of God. And so Peter, in 2 Peter chapters 1 and 2, talks about these same types of false prophets, but he does something really amazing. Listen to what he says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. But false prophets also rose among the people, talking about what I just described. False prophets in the middle of real prophets rising in the middle of people. Hear this. Just as there will also be false teachers among you. Stop real quick. Do you see what he just did? So in the Old Testament... There were prophets, the way I just described. Today there are false teachers. This parallelism of teachers, and hear me, what, or hear what he says: who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even den- denying the Master who bought them bringing swift destruction upon themselves and many will fall their sensuality and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. So how do people go down this wide path? Hear me, just listen, because they've been tricked. So if it's true for those who are teaching, it's also true for those who are following. They're going down this destructive path and it's all bad, man. It's all bad. They think they're okay, but they're not okay. So let's get real for a second. Nobody likes the lines in the sand, but Jesus is going to do it a ton in this passage. Let me just piggyback on what he is saying. There are right beliefs and there are wrong beliefs. There is no coexist. Buddha, Joseph Smith, Allah, they are false demonic gods. Check it, check it, check, hold. The same is true within Christianity. There are people within Christianity that are ravenous wolves. And they may not be calling out to Allah. They may not be calling out to Buddha. They may not be looking, searching inwardly, whatever we would call this. They're not leaning on those things, but they are saying they are leaning on to Jesus, but they're lying. There are false doctrines. There are false teachers. There are demonic pastors. Do you understand? They look like sheep, but they're ravenous wolves. Now, he's not done. Good Lord, I wish he was. Um, here's, here's the question that, that you inevitably have to ask, ask from that. If that's how the, de- the destructive path goes, how can we know? How can I know? I, I don't want to follow that way, so who do I know who to listen to? How can I even look at my own life of following those teachers? Like, how can I know? Well, Jesus gives us an answer to that. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from the bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. It's simple, right? You go to Moon Valley Nursery. You tell them, hey, I want to plant an orange tree in my front yard. They give you an orange tree, you dig the hole, you plant the orange tree. A season goes around and you get your first harvest. There's maybe a dozen, two dozen oranges on the orange tree. You look at it, it looks like an orange, you pick it off, it smells like an orange. You go inside, you cut it, you taste it, and it tastes absolutely disgusting. You go back to Moon Valley Nursery, you say, hey, what's the deal? Why is this like this? And they look at it and they go, oh, well you bought, and this would be to their surprise and yours, you bought something called an ornamental orange tree. Now, if you don't know what an ornamental orange tree is, they are all over the valley. Trust me, growing up, trying to live off them, it was no good, okay? But, but you, 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 you go to a park, they're mostly in parks, and you pull one of these oranges and they look like an orange. They smell like an orange, but they are absolutely disgusting. They're, they're rotten and they're not meant to be eaten. And if they were, they're a product of the fall, okay? <laughs> but, but hear me when I say this, Jesus is taking this idea and going, hey, This is, like, he brings it even further. It's not even just two different trees that one looks like an orange tree and is not. No, no. You've got this tree, and it's producing bad ornamental fruit, but it's actually supposed to be an orange tree. It's rotten. It's no good. And this is what's laying out. It's simple, man. How can we know where our lives are? Are we on the right path, or are we on the wrong path? Are these teachers on the right path, or are they on the wrong path? The answer is simple. What fruits are they producing? Apple trees do not produce oranges. It's simple. Now, what is fruit? Like, how can we know? Like, that's so easy. It's ethereal, right? Look at your life, see what, and, and and it's good fruit or it's bad fruit, but what is it? And fortunately for us, the Bible gives us things that we can actually tangibly look at to see those who are following the ways of destruction and those who are following the narrow path. So there's about four places in Scripture. I'm going to read one to you. It's in Galatians chapter 5. Let me read this to you very quickly. This is what it says in Galatians 5. We're going to start in verse 16, okay? So I say let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what, is sinf- what, what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil which is just the opposite of what the spirit wants. And the spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. So you are not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Stop, colon, right? Here it is. The desires of the flesh of this destructive path by both teachers and those who follow, maybe even us in this room, are this. Sexual morality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and in case we forgot anything, other sins like these. So we can look at their life, but more appropriately for us, let's look at our life, And does our life reflect that? Because if it does, we're on the wrong path. But he doesn't finish there, because he goes on. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God, those who live that way. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Colon, right? Here it is again, probably one of the most famous passages in Scripture. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Listen to verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives and goes on to give us more commands. So when I see this, and I'm reading through this passage, I can't help but think like, I I want to get this right because the orange trees in the yard... And once you find out it's an ornamental orange tree, let's just ask a real basic question, man. You don't want an ornamental orange tree. What are you going to do with it? You're not going to let it continue to grow. You're going to rip it out. And this is where the whole passage, I think, gets literally deathly serious. (laughs) For those who are walking this path, whose fruits, hear me, whose fruits is the list that I just gave of sexuality, impurity, all these different things. Listen to what he says. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So here's what's, okay. Um, Every time it's used the word bear up to this point, I've tried to explain this. If you've been here for a couple months, um, I can't. there's no way I can obviously share everything within the Greek language, but the, the, the language that the Bible is written in is different than the English language. And something I've tried to share before is tenses are different, meaning we have certain words that we add to continual ways. I've shared this many times already. So when I say stop, I can just tell you this one time stop, or I can say, well, keep stopping. Well, that's crazy, I wouldn't say that, but keep running, right? Okay, there, there's something that I can ongoing. You can look at the word bear, hear me when I say this, and honestly add the word constantly to Matter of fact, some of your translations say bearing. It's in the present tense, meaning, not the English present, the Greek present tense, meaning it's over and over. So let me just lay this out very simply to you. If your life has a thematic approach of constantly looking like the list I just read, sexual morality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these, if your life Looks like that. If you're okay continuing to sleep with him, continuing to sleep with her, if you're okay with doing that, hear me as gently as I can possibly say this. I was told when I first became a preacher and I was told many times before that hard words create soft hearts and soft words create hard hearts. And I pray this is true in this moment because this is a very hard word, a very difficult word, and I pray that it creates a soft heart. But if your life looks like that, you are going to hell. You're, you're going to hell, man. You are not a ball player. You've been tricked. Now, listen, this may sound like really cheesy to say, but like as a pastor, I don't want you to go to hell. Like I I don't particularly like the the executives in Planned Parenthood. I, I don't like ISIS. Um, I definitely like child molestation. Is, I, I don't like child molesters. But at the end of the day, I don't want any of them to go to hell. I sure in the heck don't want you to go to hell. Now hear me. Those people are one thing. I don't want you to go to hell when you think you're going to heaven. You think you're on the right path. Somebody has lied to you. And you've been tricked and you believe it. The synthetic version of Christianity that you think it can be easy, but it's not easy. It's hard and it's long and it's a dirt road. And God has called us to walk that path that compresses us. It's so unbelievably hard, but, but, but this is what's amazing about this whole thing. You know physically, you know this to be true, that everything that is worth anything in this life requires discipline. Anything. Anything that is worth anything in this life requires us to discipline ourselves. You can look at this, the great example is is our health, right? Nobody particular loves going to the gym and, and there's people who love going to the gym and love working out, right? But your flesh doesn't like what you're going through. You like you may like the idea of waking up sore the next day, but your body doesn't like it, but you care about your health enough to say, no, I like this because it's worth it. I mean, Picking up gardening three years ago, something I noticed immediately is, listen, you ain't growing anything unless you're getting your hands dirty. I mean, this is true for parenting. This is true for marriage. Anything that is worth anything in this life requires discipline. You know this when you go on a vacation. Like when you go on a vacation, a part of the reason you love vacations is because you've earned it, man. The 50 weeks a a, a year that you worked, you get this one week, maybe two weeks of vacation and it's good. Because books upon books have been written about guys who have won the lottery, women who have won the lottery, and have completely lost their purpose, have killed themselves because they got vacation 52 weeks a year. No, hear me. It's good. You've earned it. Discipline was required. You know that to be true physically, it's absolutely true spiritually. Everything within our life and following Christ is so good and so great, but hear me, it requires discipline. Did you hear the fruit of the Spirit? Self-control. Self-control. And if this is not what is going on, if this is not the theme of our life, you're going to hell. You're going to hell, man. You think you're on the right path. You're going to hell. I've struggled with the doctrine of hell more than any other doctrine within Christendom. Like orthodoxy puts it in front of you, and there's no arguing this biblical view of how we can see it of internal punishment. It's not like you can look at the child lustre and go, well, oh, I want them to suffer 10,000 years. No, hear me. When it's all said and done, eternity, never ceasing, never stopping, unending separation from God. Do you understand how big of a deal this is? You cannot approach Christianity in a nonchalant fashion. You're not a hooper if that's it. You are not a ball player. He's not done, again, though we wish he was. Um, Verses 21 through 23 are where we're going to finish. And um, so 21 through 23 are like the hardest part of the hardest passage, in my opinion. So I would argue this passage is more difficult than reading the book of Revelations, like Jesus returning with fire coming out of his eyes and swords coming out of his mouth, blood running through the streets. You're reading this going, wow, that, like, this is terrifying. And in my opinion, the most terrifying passage in all of scripture and this section is the most terrifying section in that most terrifying passage. The seven words I pray no one in this room will hear. This is what he says. Now he speaks into the future. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Just stop very quickly. Do you hear that? So people are going to stand before Jesus and they are going to say, Lord, Lord. But they did not do the will of the Father. They did not put their sneakers on, get on the court, do their two-a-days. They did not put in the hustle. They did not put in the hard work. They did not find the self-control. They did not find the discipline. And they're going to say, Lord, Lord. But they are not ball players. Let me prove it to you. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty... Uh, and do many works, many mighty works in your name. And then I will say to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You have people who will stand before Jesus and know all of the hows of Christianity, but don't know the lies. And this is where I want to stop and just give you an example, how I truly believe people will stand before Jesus and have casted out demons and have prophesied and do whatever mighty works are, okay, um, let me give you an example. And I feel comfortable doing this example um, because it's coming on the, the, the heels of talking about false teachers. And um, I'm not one, I can joke around about certain people within the Christian faith, and I still think they're absolutely Christians. Um, but, but I think there is, uh, it's appropriate for us to, at least according to um, uh, verse 20, thus you will know them, talking to us, you will recognize them by their fruits. We can look at certain teachers, certain people who will, be teachers and are liars who will stand before Jesus and do mighty things, but are not Christians, are ravenous wolves. So I'm not trying to drop names just for the sake of drawing names, a line in the sand, but one of those people, just as by way of example, is a man named Benny Hinn. I would argue, and if you like Benny Hinn, immediately stop liking him, okay? Benny Hinn has, in my opinion, proven over and over, by the way of his ministry and his life, that he is a ravenous wolf. I believe Benny Hinn will stand before Jesus unless he repents of his ways, and he will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I cast out demons? Didn't I prophesy? I mean, didn't I do mighty works? And the world, I mean, man, the Christian discernment that is lacking here is unbelievable because the world has even looked time and time again, even 60 minutes devoting an hour to the fact that he has bought multiple jets. And to my own detriment, working alongside their ministry, sitting at a table, watching letters come in by widows who are told if they gave $70, they would be blessed for seven months. And so now we open the letter. We are to take the letter, throw it in the trash, take their check and put it in a bin. Hear me when I say this, demonic, demonic. People like that will stand before Jesus and they will say, Lord, Lord. And he's going to say, I do not know who you are. Now, if it is true for someone who does exorcism, because I don't know how many of you guys cast out demons lately. That's not something I, I, I haven't reached varsity yet. Okay. But if somebody can do it on that level, believe, believe it can happen to us. That we can think we're Okay. And we're not. I mean, uh, something I've said before many times, but the reality is, there's a quote by uh, Leonard Ravenona's book, Why Revival Tarries, where he says it's a lot easier to wear the cross around our neck than it is on our back. For, for us, it's a, and he goes on to say a wonderful, like a crazy thing. He says, it's amazing how worn out the edges of the narrow path are. That we as Christians want to see how far we can go and still be in the narrow path. And if that is the motivation, if our life continues to reflect that mentality, you're gonna be thrown out into the fire. You do not know him and God help you. You will hear those words and the last good thing you will hear will be the one who could have saved you, but you chose not to. And then all you will feel is emptiness, void, and anguish and hear screams upon screams forever. And I am not trying to fear I'm just saying this might be the ultimate worst mic drop in all to, of all time. Jesus literally lays this in front of us and goes, deal with it. May this wake us up. God, may this wake us up. Let me read something from C.S. Lewis and then we will close out. Um, he says this in his uh, um, book, The Screwtape Letters. The safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, Without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. His point is, as you walk down the wide path to destruction, there's not this like, hey, Jesus, you're going to destruction. Okay. Hey, hey, just so you know, this is the wide path. Okay. No. It's gradual, it's slow. And unless the Holy Spirit wakes you up and you go, what am I doing? And you repent, it's on the path of destruction. Now, um, I, the last thing I ever want to do is try to soften the blow of this passage. I don't want to try to, um, okay, feel easy. But um, we need to state something in all of this because, because there's an important part within Timothy that Paul says that godly sorrow produces death, or worldly sorrow produces death, but godly sorrow produces repentance. And so if this passage, when reading it, does not re- lead you to repentance, you're missing it. So let me help you get there um, by way of an example, because if you know Redemption Church and you know me, I hold absolutely to the fact that if you are a believer on the narrow path, your salvation is secure, that, that you can trust that God has saved you, according to John 10, according to Philippians 1, Ephesians 1, Romans eight. That God God has saved you, that you, even as we read in, in 2 second Corinthians chapter one, that you're sealed with the Holy spirit of promise. You can, you can lay your head down at night and go, I'm saved. But at the same exact time, the new Testament forces us in the direction of something that we are called to do often. And that is examine ourselves. So let me, let me share how this plays in tangent with the story. And it's actually the story of a church within the Bible. It's the story of the Corinthian church. If you don't know the, the book of Corinthians, it's written by a guy named Paul. He actually writes three letters. We have two of them. And as he writes first and second Corinthians in your Bible, side by side, he write, writes this letter and he writes it to this church. And I want to read the first part the very first words in 1 Corinthians 1, and then I want to read the last part of, of, of 2 Corinthians 13, the very end. So the, 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 the book ends of these two letters. And if I was given three minutes to explain what these letters, letters are about, this is how I would do it. So here's how Paul starts his first letter. He plants this church, goes away, writes a letter, and says, Here's what I gotta say to you. This is how it starts, okay? Starts like this uh 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So here's how the letter starts. Okay. I need you to hear this. His context is, let me just start by saying, I am writing to the church so much. So this is what he says. I'm writing to the church of God. I'm writing to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. And I am writing to saints. So he describes the people that he is writing to as the church. They are bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. They are saved by Jesus Christ. And they are considered saints. Now if you notice, if you look in your, pa- if you look in your Bibles, there's a colon. Okay, That's because from this moment on, Paul Malays them with how terrible of Christians they are. They are the church of God. They are absolutely saints. And they are sanctified in Jesus Christ. But then, all of 1 Corinthians... Let me just give you a list of what I made. It's not even the whole list. The book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing those people. Hear me. There's divisions, personality cults, and cliques... Their carnality outweighs their spirituality. Sexual perversion, fornication, incest, adultery were commonly practiced and accepted. Pride, worldliness, materialism, and I quote, reigned within them. Church members were taken one another to court. There was rebellion against apostolic authority. There was a failure to discipline members who had fallen into sin. There's marital conflict along with a huge misunderstanding of singleness. There were abuses of liberty. There were abuses of God's intended roles for husbands and wives. There were failing to properly observe the Lord's Supper. There was a serious perversion of ser- uh, spiritual gifts. Read 1 Corinthians 14. It's crazy. And then lastly, this is hilarious to me, and Also makes me want to cry. There was also heresies concerning the resurrection. Now, if you don't know Christianity, just know this. The resurrection is like all we've got. It's like the pinnacle of Christianity. It's like everything else builds around the resurrection. And hear me when I say this. The church of God, the sanctified, the saints, were getting that wrong. How is this possible? How can... They stand before Jesus and not hear the words, depart from me. How is that possible? Incest, fornication. At one point, a man is sleeping with his father's new wife. They don't do anything about it. They treat communion as nonchalant. How can those people be saints? So then we fast forward because then he ends up writing another letter in 2 Corinthians. And he goes through, and he's not done. He continues to melee them with things that they're continuing to get wrong. And how he finishes, in 2 Corinthians 13, he finishes with the last imperative that he says. So there's some uh, final you know, uh, benediction and greeting things to other people as he goes. But the last imperative, meaning the last thing uh, Paul tells this church to do, is verse 5. Listen to what he says. In the midst of knowing that they are a sanctified church, between all that, their a sanctified church who is struggling in sin. Verse 5 examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith test yourselves or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test so how can we know here's all I'm going to say according to first and second corinthians saints who love Jesus who truly are christian examine themselves that's the difference What I've said over and over, and I will continue to put it in front of you. The only sin we will ever be okay with at Redemption Peoria is the sin you're not okay with. To go, I'm doing this. I've continued to sin. And if the next words out of your mouth are not, and I hate it. I want to stop so bad. If we are not going, is this right? Is this wrong? Should I do this? Should I not? If we are not examining ourselves, we are not on the floor. We are not ball players. We are considered saints only because of Jesus Christ. But because of that, we constantly examine ourselves, which is the beauty of the passage and how we finish. Because the word "bear" in fruit was ongoing—that you constantly bear. But guess what? Guess what? A uh, tense "examine" is constantly. You can add the word "constantly" in the front of uh, "examine." That we as Christians at the same time constantly examine ourselves, and so we can know that we want to be everything but liars. There are some of you who are doing insanely heinous things. You cannot even understand the resurrection. Be sleeping with your father's new wife. But if you hate it, if you want to repent from it, if you want to run from it, if you know it's a synthetic version that leads to destruction, hear me, you are welcome down the narrow path. Ain't nobody perfect. A matter of fact, most of it in this room has recognized as Christians, we're far from it saints examine themselves. My prayer is that we would do that well. We would do that as a church, that we would live in this fearful expectation that we are saved by grace, but because of that, we've been called to get on the floor and play the game. Let's do it together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now as a church, as a a body of believers, those who would consider themselves Christian in this room. And um, based on this passage, we come ridiculously humble. We come with a mind and a heart and a posture of knowing that we are saved because of you, because Our knee-jerk reaction and proclivity is to walk the easy path. We we want to do that, and we know it leads to destruction, and yet sometimes we still choose it. We pray, God, that we would often examine ourselves. Holy Spirit, I I pray that you would haunt us. Don't let us sleep. Don't let us eat. Don't let us socialize. Don't let us sit on the couch and waste our life Looking at Facebook, haunt us. Let this mole in our minds and our hearts over and over and over again. May it be there if we are walking down the path of destruction. If we have been lied to and we are not bearing fruits, if our life constantly looks like fruits of destruction, haunt us. Save our souls. I don't care if it brings poverty. I don't care if it brings persecution. I don't care what it brings. Save our souls, maim our arms, lose our eyes just to save our souls. Please, Jesus, please. As a body of believers, we do not want to hear those seven words. Jesus, we recognize it's because of you and you alone that we're saved. Our prayer together is that we would respond appropriately, that we would get on the court, with a passion for you and play the game. That we would live out the fruit of the spirit, that we'd be loving people, we'd be a gentle people, we'd be a kind people, we'd be a self-controlled people, a faithful people. God, thank you so much for this, for the ability to walk that narrow path and seeing those fruits. Lastly, I pray for those of us who have believed false teachings. We pray very adamantly against the false teachers of our day. We pray that their mouths would be shut. We pray that their doctrines would cease. We pray that we would have discernment according to 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. That we would have discernment to hear and know what is of you and what is not of you. That we would not be a people that say, Lord, Lord, but do not do the will of our Father. That's our prayer this morning. Thank you so much, Jesus, for your blood. Apart from it, we're just done for. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.